So today we're talking about the return of the Israel, Israel group that had been taken into captivity. They're returning back to their homeland. Okay, so you remember last week, I want you to jump into me, jump into this with me here. We talked about the Jewish people ending up as slaves in Babylon, and they were living under house arrest, basically. Uh, we covered the stories of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and we talked about how these stories are so amazing, and God was so faithful to these guys, and how we love those miracles, right? We love the miracle of Daniel and the lion's den, and we love the miracle of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. But we also talked about how the next morning, all these guys, Daniel and those three other guys, they woke up, and guess what? They were still slaves. They were still captive. They still weren't able to live in freedom. But they did not let their circumstances define how they were going to have faith in God. They didn't, their, their situation did not magically change, even though they, they lived through these amazing, miraculous stories, even though God was faithful to them and they were faithful to him. So we talked about what are we going to allow to define our reality when things get bad, when things are good, when things are awful, when things are brilliant. Are those the things that define our reality or is it our faith in God and his faithfulness to us that's going to define how we interact with reality in every circumstance, in the midst of everything, good and bad. And so this week, we're going to talk about how some of the Israelites were allowed to return to their homeland, some of them. Because if you read the story, it makes you think that all of them went. But not all of them went. Because if you're reading ahead, you know that Esther stayed. Esther stayed. There was a whole contingent. Of, we'll talk about that briefly in a minute. There's a whole contingent of, of Israelis that stayed, right? Of Jewish people that stayed. So... The first question we should be asking here is, what happened? What changed so that they were allowed to return home? Um, I was going to show you a map, but you can look this up on your own. There, there, Persia, Babylon had become the power that, that took over uh, the Israel, nation of Israel and took them into captivity. But then Persia comes on the scene and they conquer Babylon. Okay, uh, And the difference between Persia and Babylon is this. The Babylonians came through. And they just basically devoured everything in their path like a plague of locusts. They just took over, and they basically said, you're going to do what we say or else. We're going to beat you into submission, and they made you work for them so that they could have not just your taxes. They had your everything. They owned you. That was the Babylonians. They did not care about you. They treated you like a possession. Now, the Persians had this different way of doing things. I thought about this point. They're more like a melting pot. I thought about putting a clip of the old schoolhouse rock melting pot clip up there. But how they came to, uh, they came into rule and they did it differently. Persia didn't want to dominate or suppress your culture. They didn't want to say, you're not allowed to do what you used to do. They would actually say, we want you, we want you to cultivate and, and assimilate your culture into our melting pot of cultures. And then, they would tax the heck out of you, okay? They would just tax you uh, demanding tribute like crazy. So you made them rich, but they kept the peace by saying, look, we're not trying to get you to adopt our ways. You just need to pay your taxes and you can do whatever you want, okay? We're not taking your culture away from you. So that's how they kind of held this, this tenuous peace between the people, between themselves and any, anybody else who they, who they conquered, okay? And during this time period, there are two prophets 
who have their own books in the Old Testament who are active during this period of history, and they are Haggai and Zechariah, okay? One of the other characters with a book uh, in the Old Testament that's active at this time is Ezra, and then there's also Nehemiah, all right? And then there's also Esther, okay? They pop up in this time frame too, which is why they're all grouped together in, in the Old Testament. So you can think of Ezra as the priest, right? And Nehemiah is this fiery, fierce, construction wall builder guy who he comes back from Babylon and he gets there and there are still Jews who didn't get taken into captivity and if, and, and if they don't toe the line, he just like goes up to them and he just grabs their beard and rips it out. That's Nehemiah, okay? He's just fiery like, you don't deserve to be called a Jew because you didn't live through what we did, you know, and you're not being faithful. That's what he's like, all right? And then Esther, she and Mordecai, her uncle, they actually stay in Babylon. And the question is, why does she stay there? And we're going to talk about her next week. We talk about how she saves the whole nation of Israel that is left there in Babylon. And another thing that we should focus on is that when the Israelites who come back from Babylon return to their homeland, the homeland, remember how it was divided into northern and southern kingdoms? When they return, it's not divided. It's one country again. It's, it's unified. There's unity. And they have one king named, and I want you to say this with me, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. That echo, Zerubbabel. Okay, yeah. Zerubbabel is the king, he's, but he's actually the great, 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 great grandson of Manasseh. You guys remember Manasseh? What was he known for? There's nobody worse than Manasseh. This guy was like the worst of the worst. He did more, e the phrase is, he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than anybody who came before him. He was, he was like the cream of the crop. You rise to the top. No, I'm not going to go there. That was for you. That's from Psalm, you know. Anyway, the, they're, they're going to focus on Zerubbabel and Persia taking over. Now, the king of Persia is Cyrus. And he becomes king over, when he takes over for Nebuchadnezzar, he and takes over all of the Babylonian territory. It includes taking over the Israelite people. Okay, so we know this happened in history. And I want to show you this on, on the board here so that you can make sense of it, okay? Down within a few months... Down to within a few months, we know that this happened. In 538 BC, Persia uh, takes over Babylon. In 537 BC, Cyrus issues a decree that the Israelites are gonna, should be released and go back to their homeland. And he gives Ezra all the stuff that is in the temple that the Babylonians took. Remember we talked about last week? They took all the implements that were inside the temple because it wasn't just about, I'm going to conquer you and, and, and destroy your nation and wipe you out. It's that my God, our gods of our nation, are defeating your gods. And the way we show that is we take all your stuff from your temple, and we take it, and we cart it back, and we put it in the temple of our gods and say, yeah, what's up, right? This is why the Philistines were always stealing the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, because they're like, our God's better than your God. Your God doesn't mean anything to us, right? So they give to Ezra all the stuff that was taken from them. Again, this is different. The Persians are different, right? They give it back. And they caravan it all the way back to Israel. And then you fast forward to 535 BC, and they have completed the foundation for the new temple. And in chapter 19, in the story this week, it says in Ezra that when the foundation was completed, the young, you should have read this this week, the young people were actually, they actually cheered. They were like, woo, you know, because they were so excited that they built this. But the, those who were older, what does it say about them? They wept, yeah. 
they wept because they had seen the temple in its former glory and they were like, now all we've got is this foundation, so what's there to celebrate, right? Then in 522, King Darius takes over the Persian Empire from Cyrus. So that's the context, that's the background for what happens in the story today. And we're going to start this story by looking, we're going to stay in Haggai, okay? So if you have your Bible, turn to Haggai. Haggai chapter 1 says this, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, we know that King Darius, <clears throat> we'll talk about this in a minute, we know when, we came, when he came to power, right? So it says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. The time has not yet come. Now, if you stop and think about that for a second, it's, it's interesting because Darius took over from Cyrus when? In 522. So this text tells us, Haggai 1 starts off by saying, in the second year of King Darius. So it's not 524. Two years later would be 520, because when you're in BC, you count backwards, towards zero, okay? Just a reminder there. So it's 520 BC, and when did they lay the foundations of the temple? 535 BC, from that chart I showed you before, 535 BC. How many years has it been? 15 years, yeah, I heard of 15 out there. Good job. 15 years for all the math people out there, okay? Was that you, Isaiah, saying 15? No? Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> now, it's been 15 years, and they say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. It says in verse 3, Haggai chapter 1, Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And that phrase, the Lord Almighty, is uh, in verse 5. This is what the Lord Almighty says, and it said it before in verse 2. Lord Almighty is one of these titles, again, that God gives himself. Okay, And in Hebrew, it means sovereign commander-in-chief. Commander-in-chief. Who do we have that's commander-in-chief? Our president, right? Our president. So it's a loaded phrase, which means I am the only one who can really protect you. I have, I'm, the, I'm the boss of the army, is what that Lord Almighty says. I'm the, the sovereign commander-in-chief. So verse 7 says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of the heavens, because of, uh, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant, the entire remnant of the people, obeyed, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. 
Now you have all that scripture in your mind. I want to explain a little bit to you about what's going on below the surface, in between the lines here. What is going on here is remember that Cyrus, the king of Persia, gave them back all the implements of the temple to take back to Israel. Cyrus gave them all those implements, but we know from, the, from history what he also gave them was enough to go back and settle and enough to rebuild the temple. It wasn't just the implements. He also gave them expensive cloth and linen and timbers from Babylon. And they hauled it back to Israel kind of in waves. They didn't all just go at once. They went in smaller caravans in waves for the purpose of rebuilding their temple, right? Because the Persians like, look, you want to have, we want you to have your center of culture to make you happy. So we have peace, but we're still going to tax you, <laughs> but you still get to go back. And we're going to give you all the stuff and make it, make you able to do it. And they've, they hauled it back. And the time of this text, what Haggai is saying is, you've been here for 15 years. You came back 15 years ago with all this stuff. And you haven't built the, te built the temple in all that time. Why? Because you used all that stuff to build your own houses. Whoops. And the question is, does that offend you? Would that offend you? If you were God, would that offend you? Like, look, I'm allowing this to happen. I'm going to give you everything you need. You're going to go back and you're going to give me glory and you're going to rebuild my temple. And you've been given everything you need to make that happen. And I'm asking you to rebuild my temple, a house for me. But they use it on themselves. Does it offend you that they use God's stuff to build their house? Anybody? Yeah. And I would just say this about that. If God asks us to tithe and we don't, then we're using God's stuff to build our own house. And that ought to offend you. It ought to. So they changed their ways, though. They repent, and it says everyone obeyed, right? That's what it says. Everyone obeyed, so they, they go cut down some more timber. And they start building the temple. But there's another side to this that I want to talk about for a minute. We talked a few weeks back about David and Solomon building the temple. And what did they do? David came up with this plan. God actually gave David a plan. And it wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't like this big opulent thing, right? You guys remember this? But David like, adds on to it. And then Solomon adds on to it even more. And it turns out to be this way over the top from the original design and we talked about how under the guise of saying this is all about God who was it really about huh it's about Solomon it was about him it was about his son Rehoboam it was about this is going to bring me glory not about God and God was like I don't need something that's all that flashy if you make it like that big and that flashy and that opulent you know and that kind of thing people are going to come here and they're going to look at this building which they did, and they're not going to pay atten any attention to God. They're just going to be like, oh, wow, you guys did this? Right? I don't know any churches that would ever do that, build like some big flashy building. You know, I'm just saying, we, we have to be able to laugh and poke at ourselves and go, yeah, let's be honest, right? If we don't, we're in, we're in a lot of trouble, collectively, not just our church, but all churches. 
In this day's story, though, we have this exact opposite, right? Like God's like, look, I don't need that house. I need, I, I need, you don't need to make it that way, right? In this story today, we have the exact opposite. These people are like, God doesn't need a house at all, right? And it's interesting because if you just read the story about David and Solomon, and you took that by itself, uh, you might, and this is, this is my pet peeve with people who, uh, who like cherry pick scriptures to like make their point. Right? You, if we just took the story about David and Solomon and said God doesn't want a house by itself, you would think that that's true, right? Or he doesn't want, he doesn't want much of one at the very least. But in today's story we, see, story, we see God saying, no, I do want a house. I do want a house. But the point I want you to see is that in both stories, God can use things like buildings to bring focus and attention on him. But God is like this. What you're doing is you're taking my things and you're building your own world with it. You're taking my stuff and you're building your own world with it. And after you selfishly build your own little world with my things, it's that then you come to me and you say, I want you to bless me. God, will you bless me? God, will you bless me? And this is human nature. We're all in this together. We all act like this on some level or another. We want to live in these polar opposite extremes. The first extreme from David and Solomon's story is that we, it's this opulence that's out of control where we have the appearance that we really are giving God everything, but we've really twisted it and made it about ourselves. It's basically about our own fame and our own glory and our own controlling the situation and our own reputation. We say it's for God, but it's really about us. It's not really for him. And the second one, the other side of it is God can take care of himself. He doesn't need anything from me. He doesn't want a house. He shouldn't need a house. So we're going to completely neglect the house of God. He doesn't need my resources. In fact, they're my resources. They're not his. Both of those options are about self and totally focused on me focused on ourselves rather than God. And I would say that the truth is somewhere in the middle where we can find the place where God really gets glorified. And that's the point. God wants to be glorified. He wants to be honored. He wants to be recognized in an appropriate way. He wants our focus to be steadfastly put on him, not for one little time frame here a week or one little time frame there, or only for this season or that season. He wants what he's due because he created everything and he loves us. He wants to be glorified. If we can keep the focus of any action we do about bringing glory and honor to God's name without drifting to those extremes of the, of the spectrum where he, he gets way over the top but it's really about us or he gets nothing because it's really about us. Those are the, those are the extremes of the spectrum. If we can keep in the middle and keep the focus on glorifying him, then we're, we're probably gonna be on target. Ultimately though, it just boils down to this. We've said this a whole lot in here as a church. It's how we live that makes a statement about God. It's how we live. It is not what you say about what you believe in your head. You can say that, but we all know you better back it up with your action for it to actually be faith. Your actions are what put your faith on display. Prove your faith by showing the world what you believe through your actions. And for 15 years in this story, 
the people of God had better things to do with their time. In fact, they took God's stuff, right? And they built their own houses. Instead of building a, a building that would house their God and inspire them to want to go out in their community and live for God. And God was like, enough. I released you from bondage, and now what? And now what? Nothing. Nothing. You're just sitting here doing nothing for 15 years. You've, you've done nothing to show the world that you're living for me. All you've done is live for yourself. Now, one of the questions the Jews struggled with during this time was this. And we should struggle with this too. Why did God allow us to be hauled off to Babylon into slavery, right? That's a valid question. Don't you want to know the answer to that question? It's like, why? Why? And we could have talked uh, tons about that answer last week. Uh, but their answer, their answer was basically, and we, we spent a lot of time, here, don't hear me wrong here, we spent a lot of time talking about how the reason he did that was not because they needed to pay, right? The reason was because they were telling the wrong story about God. And he was to be their representatives. When you live the wrong story about God, he's like, look, I need to, you say you're about me, so now you need, this, I, you've been living the, long, the wrong story for a long time, and the world's getting the wrong idea about who I am as a God because of the way you're living. And you're telling the wrong story. So it's not that you need to pay for what you've done. It's that I need, to, I need to take you over here and correct you. And the way he did that was, I'm going to allow you to be conquered. But why they, what they focused on, just like what we do, is this. Why did God allow us to be taken off to Babylon into slavery? Because we sinned. That's what they said. And that might be an oversimplification is what I'm saying. But it's true at the same time. That was their answer. And so while they were wrestling with that, they wanted to figure out how to make it never happen again to be carted off into slavery. They wanted to figure out a way that that would never happen to them again while they're in Babylon. So what did they do? They invented a school while they were in Babylon for Jews to come and learn the text. They invented a school for Jews to come and learn the text. And they developed this system where children were able to learn the text of Scripture in ways that we have never, ever been able to duplicate to this day. And they called that place where students went to learn, they called it a synagogue. They called it a synagogue, and that's where it started when they were in Babylon. And so you need to consider this. By the age of 12 to 14 years old, by the, age, by the time frame of our middle schoolers, who are, and they're capable. They're back there running our live stream. They're back there running, our, running the show up here, okay? And obviously we don't put on a show with all the mistakes and everything we make up here, but it's by the age of 12 to 14, even the most inept students who were in these synagogues, like I'm talking like you get D's and C's. Anybody else in here ever get a D and C? <laughs> yeah? Um, they had the entire Hebrew scriptures memorized by the time they were 12 or 14. The entire Hebrew scriptures by the time they were 12 or 14. By the time they were six or seven, they had the first five books memorized. The Torah. That makes us feel a little inadequate. <laughs> Let's be honest, right? And here's the, here's the other deal to help you understand this a little bit better. Nobody had a Bible in their house. No one had a Bible in their house. And None of these synagogues had a complete copy 
of the Hebrew Bible to themselves. They had to share. They had to rotate them around. You know? So they started this because they wanted to be set apart from every other people so that God would not haul them off into captivity anymore. Remember the story of Josiah? Manasseh's grandson. Manasseh was so evil. Manasseh's son was so evil. His grandson did good in the eyes of the Lord. That was Josiah. He did what was right. They found the book of the law in the temple. They brought it to him, and nobody knew or remembered what the book, the Torah, was. Like, the high priest was kind of like, here it is, but when it got passed to Josiah, they're like, hey, the high priest gave me this book. Maybe you are, I don't know why, here's this book. And, no, and he's like, what? They just called it a book, and it's, it's the law. It's the Bible. Then now Nehemiah comes in, and he wants to build a wall, and they're trying to find their security in building walls, in building houses, in other words, building an insulated, protected world, this little bubble that'll keep them safe. And God says to them, I'm the Lord Almighty. I am your sovereign commander in chief. Only I can keep you safe. I am your protection. I am your defense. Trust me, is what he says. Your security, in other words, is not in your house. It's not in your walls. It's not in your bank account. Your security is in me. Do right by me and I'll take care of everything else. That's what he's saying when he calls himself Lord Almighty. And this is a really, 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 really hard lesson for them to learn. And it is for us too, right? It is. So finally, they don't want this to happen anymore. So they start synagogues. And what's really interesting is by the time Jesus shows up, but your Old Testament ends, the Old Testament in the Bible ends, there's like a blank page that represents 400 years of time where God's not on the scene and we don't really have any we know what histories happened there, but we don't have any stories in the Bible that happened there. And then finally Jesus shows up in the New Testament. He shows up over that 40, 400 years of silence between the Testaments. And now what we have is this people who have moved from being a group of, you got Manassas and all their sons, you know, you got all these kings who failed, who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You got this group of people who were a morally questionable group of reprobates and now at the time of Jesus they have turned into self-righteous pious legalistic jerks <laughs> it, they've moved from one extreme to the other why did that happen because here's the deal they were working so hard to be set apart and we kind of give them a bad rap, right? We think of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, because it, it wasn't really that they were trying to be mean. They were trying to figure out how to make God happy. And so Jesus comes along and often celebrates the things that they would do well, but he's like, look, you do all of this well, but that thing over there, that thing over there, yeah, you got this piece over here that you're just kind of missing it. You're just not like, you're doing everything right, but you're also like not loving people. It's kind of like the point. Kind of missed that. 
But I want you to see something here in Haggai 2, if you turn the page to Haggai chapter 2. And I love this. God, God is not a God who beats us up because of our mistakes. And I just love that. Uh, like, there's so many second chances. There's like second chance after second chance after second chance. He doesn't pretend that there aren't mistakes. He doesn't deny them. He doesn't say that you're not going to have to deal with your consequences if you do something that's not right. But he also doesn't beat us up over our mistakes. In Haggai 2, God speaks through the prophet Haggai again. And this takes place nine months after the first chapter. In verses 10 through 14, God, he poses this question to his people about what makes something defiled? What makes something unworthy or unholy? And in verse 14, we read this. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do, whatever they offer there is defiled. Basically, God is saying that nobody is without sin. Everyone is sinful. Everyone in this room is sinful. Whatever any human offers to God is defiled. We just got to sit with that for a moment. We just got to sit with that for a moment. But I want to see what else God says, don't you? He says that first, but then in verse 15, he says this. He says, consider and give careful thought to how things used to be. Nothing you've strived for has produced the fruit it was supposed to because you didn't do it for me. It says in verse 19, but from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. Why is he going to bless them? Because they're finally concentrating on God's agenda. That's what we learned in Haggai chapter 1. They obeyed when they started to build the temple. They're making God's priorities their priorities. And from this day forward, he says, I'm going to bless you. If you keep my priorities your priorities, it's going to be enough. It's going to be enough. And then God does what he does best. He goes one step further, and I just, I just love this. With his grace and his mercy, in verses 20 through 23, he talks directly to the king, to Zerubbabel, who is the great-great-great-grandson of who? Of Manasseh, right? Who is worse than anybody in the eyes of the Lord. And God redeems Zerubbabel. A guy, this guy has probably not had a day in his life where all the... All of the Jewish people around him were probably like, yeah, you know why we're in Babylon? Because you and your family, it's your family, you're the reason we're here. Now, they probably were forgetting that they all went along with what his great, great, great grandfather said, and they all just ignored what the prophets were saying, what Jeremiah and Ezekiel were saying, but here's Zerubbabel who, who's constantly be reminded you're the great 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 grandson of Manasseh you've ruined our lives it's your family's fault and God says something amazing here in verse 23 and um, I just want to preface this with uh, like a signet ring conversation all of you have a uh, a uh, object blessing on your table in front of you you can grab that now if you'd like it's a ring pop sorry for those of you who are with us online you don't get a ring pop you got to be here to get the good stuff um, a signet ring is what, you know, if you, if you were going to send a letter and they knew it was really from you and you wanted to know that that letter hadn't been read, you would seal that letter and you would 
they would drip wax on where it would be sealed and they would, you would stamp it with your ring that would be like your name, right? And back at this, during this time, the signet ring was used like it was handed down from the father of the family to his firstborn son, the Behor, that we've talked about before. And only the Behor would get that signet ring. And the signet ring was also used for buying and trading. Like if I want to go to the, I want to go to the feed store and I want to buy some more seed for my crops and I want to buy it on credit and, and they, they want to make a note of that, they're going to drip some wax on, on something and I'm going to stamp it with my signet ring. The signet ring signals that you have the authority to make decisions on behalf of the family. It's all about the family business. And it says in verse 23, on that day, declares the Lord Almighty to Zerubbabel, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, declares the Lord. I will make you like my signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. And what God is saying is, He's saying, you bear my family's name. The signet ring means he is the one with authority to be about God's business. People would, people would die before they gave up their family's signet ring because it stands for the family's honor. And only the Behor, the firstborn, gets the signet ring. We've talked long and hard about how we are the ones who are the Behor. We are called into the family as his representatives. The question back was way back when we were talking about Abraham and Jacob and Joseph was what kind of a whore, what kind of firstborn are you going to be? What kind of nation of firstborns are you going to be to the world? And he says to Zerubbabel, you're defiled. That was the first part, right? You're defiled. We all know what your family did. We all know that none of you are with, don't have any sin. You're all sinful. We all know what your great, great, great grandfather did. You're defiled, but I'm not going to leave you there. My grace is more powerful than your most vile actions. And from now on, everywhere you go, you're going to leave the mark of God on the people around you. And I just want to stop there and tell you all, there's a reason why this book is in the Bible. Because this message is not just for Zerubbabel. It is for everyone who places their faith in Jesus. And when you do that, you become a part of this nation of firstborns. And your calling and your task is to live out the mark of your God on the people around you. And because of that, we now have a whole new reason to make God's priorities our priorities. It's not just to make a building pretty. Because, if, I mean, here's, here's, the, here's the stark reality. If I tell people the wrong story about who my God is, then I'm going to leave the wrong kind of mark on those people, right? I'm going to mark them with the wrong kind of mark. And when you mark them with the wrong kind of mark, God says, you aren't worthy of my signet ring. You aren't worthy of my signet ring. But God looks at us. He looks at all of us. He looks at you and he says, look, I know you've messed up. You're going to keep messing up. But I have a plan. I know you've sinned. I was there. I'm there every time you sin. What is it that you believe has defiled you so much that you can't be God's signet ring? 
because he believes in you. He still believes you can be his firstborn. He claims that you are. He says, I will restore you and I will redeem you. And you're part of my family. Make my priorities your priorities in everything and become his messenger to the world.